This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Find out more at the conclusion of today's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host Carl Truman of Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania and world-renowned author and globetrotter, highly in demand um, everywhere he goes. And so I'm just, Carl, I'm just glad that you're here with me again and you're not in Australia or Brazil or Canada. Used, would they even let you in? Would they even let you in Canada now? Probably. I, I think I, with some of my views, I could be facing five years in prison. Yeah, yeah. In I Canada. can tell you, stay uh, away from Canada yeah. and Norway. Yeah, apparently. yeah. So, it's, yeah, and it's. I, I'm pretty confident I can get back to my own country. But some of our listeners may may think this is a great thing. It's so obvious that I could get back here at this point <laughs> if right. I tested positive for COVID. So, right. Right. Um, well. On another issue, though, I, yeah. I promised a friend I would do this. Remember, yeah. Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, the one that I forgot on that list that I gave out in that public lecture at Westminster Seminary in California. And Barry York complained very graciously, as Barry would. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I spoke at uh, Presbyterian Reformed uh, Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Reformed Presby it's yeah. like It's like the old Mujahideen trying to get the different adjectives and nouns in our presbytery. Are you saying the people right there are like the Mujahideen? No, I'm saying we said? are all like, we, we Presbyterians are all like the Mujahideen. <laughs> this is true. You know, how many combinations of reform, Presbyterian, and theological can you, can you put together and still differentiate yourself from others? Right. I spoke yeah. there uh, just after Christmas. They have the best institutional coffee mugs in the oh, world. Really? It wouldn't surprise me if they're handmade. Go online, wow. see if you can buy one. Dishwasher safe, absolutely wonderful. And I promised Barry that I would plug the coffee mugs at the first opportunity I got on the podcast. Nice, because typically institutional coffee mugs are the worst. Just look the worst. at this. I know our viewers, re-listeners can't see okay, that. That's so, impressive. Now, and my wife, who is a ceramicist in a previous life, tells me mm -hmm. the glaze is exceptional. Well, it, so, it looks like an exceptional glaze. That's all I can yeah, say. Yeah. Though I've never glazed myself, that looks like an right, exceptional right. glaze. Yeah. Yes. Well, we we hope you've enjoyed the mortification. <laughs> Visit our website where, where we're giving away Barry York Memorial mugs. You know what we ought to do? We, we ought, if he would send me one of those, then I I, I would maybe you know promote his uh, seminary on an upcoming podcast. As you well. could be but, sponsored. You know, Todd Pruitt, I, I, sponsored by Reformed Presbyterian Theological. For, for one of those mugs, I'd be happy to uh, to do that. Well, listen, as we've as as we've talked about whether or not Carl would be allowed in and out of Canada or Norway, brings me uh, to a subject, Carl. I want to talk to you a little bit about, and that is um, whether or not we are culture warriors. Now, I've been 
called a culture warrior by some people in my own denomination. I wouldn't doubt it if some people have called you that. I mean, after all, you were even banned from what Instagram or something like that for a while, or somebody who posted a lecture from you was 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 wiped away. So so you would certainly, in the eyes of some, be dismissed rather pejoratively as a as a culture warrior. Now, no doubt, all of our listeners have heard that terminology, culture warrior. It's a part of our kind of public dialogue these days. And what some people, unless they're my age or older, might not know is that term goes back to Pat Buchanan's presidential campaign after he had uh, decided to um, uh, kind of cash in his chips, stop the run, and, uh, and, and speak at the Republican National Convention where George uh, Bush, the senior, was, uh, was nominated. 1992, and Pat Buchanan got up and gave this very sober, very somber speech, which is now known as the culture war speech because he said in that speech, we are engaged in a culture war. Well, People went crazy. The mainstream media dismissed it. He was laughed at. Um, obviously, uh, that speech might uh, today um, uh, deserve um, a, a little bit of reexamination. Um, now, I will say this. There are bad ways to be engaged in this culture war. There are bad ways to resist what is wrong in society. Need, need I say Jerry Falwell Jr., right? Um, there are churches that hold political rallies, even on Lord's Day during their services. Um, First Baptist Dallas recently had Donald Trump in the pulpit um, exhorting the congregation. I kid you not. The listeners couldn't see the expression on my face at that point, but suffice it to say, <laughs> it said it all. You say it best Carl, when you say nothing at all on those. Carl, Carl was smiling and nodding, wishing that he had been there. I love America. Um, but, I love yeah, America. It's, it's, yeah, it's sure. a crazy place. It is. It is. So, so I, I, I want to make it clear, there are really bad actors in, in, in engaged in, you know, generally in the camp that I would find myself in, you know, and, and I, I don't like the term culture warrior because I think it, it, um, it misidentifies what's actually going on. Because the way I see it, Carl, and I want to get your feedback on this is that what I see from conservatives looks much more like resistance than warfare or, or responding to advances in a particular direction. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, we'll get to the sort of the biblical stuff, I guess, a, a little bit later. Yeah. It's, it's one of those interesting terms that it seems to me, and I've not done an exhaustive word search on this, but it seems to me the term is typically only applied to those on the right. Right. And yet we're aware that our culture has been transformed mainly through activism on the left. <laughs> Correct. It's, you know, it's not us who are trying to pass the Equality Act. It's not right. us who are trying to have... Uh, so say disruptive parents at school boards investigate mm -hmm. it. I, I think that the, the language has become a, a cheap way of, of demonizing those on the right. It's a little bit like you know, Alvin Plantinga made the same comment talking about fundamentalists. You know, fundamentalist mm -hmm. is that explicitive, deleted, just to the right of you. I think culture yeah. warrior tends to be used that way. The most aggressive people that I've ever met in our culture have tended to be on the left. 
Now, that's not to say they don't exist on the right. Self-evidently, they do. But I think culture war is not a monopoly of the right. Correct. There are people on both sides who have no interest in constructive conversation in our society and every interest in full frontal attack on those they perceive to be their enemies. And they are quite rightly referred to, I think, as culture warriors. Yeah. Those you know, who seek those who seek merely to defend traditional positions or those who seek in, you know, take our friend Ryan Anderson, right. been on this program several times. Ryan is one of the most genial fellows mm -hmm. you will meet. A very, very sweet, intelligent, thoughtful guy. He'd be a culture warrior to some. Right. But there's no comparison between a Fred Phelps and a Ryan Anderson. Of course. Or between a figure on the left and Ryan Anderson. Right. Um, so I think that the term has become a, a bit of rhetorical abuse, ideal for the Twitter age, ideal for mm -hmm. an age where intelligent conversation doesn't win. Hurling insults wins. And that's what I think culture warrior is, is, is useful. Exactly. You know, there's a, um, there is a pastor in, uh, in St. Louis. Um, her name is Michelle Higgins. She used to be in the PCA. In fact, she was um, a ministry leader, a ministry director at a PCA church in, uh, in St. Louis up until several years ago. And uh, her increasingly radical views were, were being outed and that sort of thing. Now she is a pastor of a very, very liberal um, church, uh, United, uh, United Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ Church in, in the St. Louis area. And uh, her, her ministry, so to speak, is highly political, very engaged in things like um, uh, bail reform and getting, if I could put it this way, getting violent criminals out of jail early and, and easier. Exactly. Yes. Um, and, and that very movement, by the way, which is being aided by, by left-wing district attorneys, um, is resulting in the deaths of people across the country, which for obvious reasons aren't being reported on very much in the national news. And often the deaths of news. people in poor neighborhoods. Exactly. As usual, the, exactly the wealthy, right. the wealthy are oh, yeah. able they've to got, uh, absorb they've got gates. Right. Yeah. They've got gates. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi is going to be just fine. Um, behind yeah. her gated mansion. But but Michelle, because she's a person of the left, is never going to be referred to as a culture warrior. Um, and yet her activities, and she refers to herself as an activist, um, are highly, highly uh, political and engaged in culture. Um, but because culture warriors are pejorative, it's not going to stick to a person of the left, yeah. just well, to, uh, to conservatives. But let me play sort of devil's advocate here a bit from a sure. Todd. Uh, the Bible. Bible is full of martial language. The narrative yes. of the Old Testament is not exclusively, but to a large extent, a warfare narrative. Mm. It's a war between the people of Israel and just about everybody who crosses their path. There's a lot of bloodshed there. The images uh, we find in the New Testament, even from the mouth of Christ, are very martial images often. Uh, talk about swords. Uh, when you go to the book of Revelation, we clearly, the, you know, the time we live in now, the between the times time, between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, it's a battleground. Right. Uh, why do you think it might not be always appropriate to call ourselves culture warriors? Yeah. I mean, in a sense, 
as Christians, we are in a war. We're war yes. against the powers and principalities of this age. Exactly. Many of which are represented through the, the cultural pathologies Absolutely. that we face. Absolutely. Why shouldn't we embrace the title of culture warrior? Yeah. It's a good thing. And I, I don't want to do that, by the way, but why well, shouldn't we? Well, no, I, I, I actually think you make a, a really good point. Um, there is, I think, a highly biblical way to um, to embrace that warrior image. Now, we want to be careful to make sure that we have the right enemy. My neighbor is not my enemy. However, there is an enemy to be fought. I, I, it's interesting. I'm, we, we have um, in, in my church, like so many churches across the country, we have school teachers and school administrators that are members of my church who are all really struggling through what's going on in our, in our public schools. And the sorts of policies uh, that are coming down from the Board of Education, et cetera. And I, I could read to you the public school policies for my community uh, regarding gender, sexuality, and inclusion. Those policies actively seek to mold the minds of our youngest children according to this new moral revolution. They are chilling. And those policies also threaten any teacher or administrator or counselor if, for instance, they tell the parent that their child is now claiming a different gender and uh, being called by a new name. Um, th those, those teachers or administrators, their jobs are threatened in those written policies. Those written policies um, uh, have lists of things that teachers are to keep from parents. Now, and the let's reason just make I a note there that yeah. what the school is saying is that the teachers have more of a right to know who the child is than Absolutely. the parents do. Exactly. Because it's exactly. identity they're talking about in their right. lingo. Exactly. Now, I'm, I'm going to use a word that Pentecostals use too much and Presbyterians probably use too seldom, and that word is demonic. Um, that's just demonic. Um, when a society of bureaucrats, some elected, some appointed, decide that an entire generation is going to have this sort of um, a new transgender ideology and sexual ideology taught to them positively and applied to their lives and that they will threaten anyone who resists that, that's demonic. Carl, back to your comments about the frequent martial language that is used within the Bible. I think of um, something John Calvin wrote in his commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Calvin wrote, the life of a Christian, it is true, is a perpetual warfare. For whoever gives himself to the service of God will have no truce from Satan at any time. So I, I think the question is not whether or not we are involved in a war and should be warriors. The question is which war, um, which yeah. enemies, and, and which weapons yeah. Yeah. is what we have to get right. And, yeah. and when we get those things wrong, then that's when churches go off the rails and they lose their mission and Christians start acting really goofy and doing stupid things like having an unregenerate secular man preach a sermon on Sunday morning, for instance, yeah, at their church. Yeah. <laughs> and I think just as before sort of coming back to the main point, I think your comment about the demonic there is very interesting, Todd. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, Katrina, my wife, is much more attuned to the supernatural than I am. She had a very rural upbringing in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. Uh, I'm much more of a kind of enlightenment man, I suppose, on that right. front. But over recent years, I've developed a new appreciation, particularly in the, for the early church fathers on this point. The mm -hmm. early church fathers, if they neglected 
some things, particularly prior to the Pelagian controversy, they neglected the darkness of the human heart, we might say. There's, there's not enough understanding of the inner psychological life of sin. But on the other hand, they had an acute awareness that they lived in a world inhabited by the demonic. And I have come to a renewed appreciation of some of the writings of the early church fathers, sort of pre internalizing Pelagian controversy stuff because of their awareness that this is a supernatural battle in which we're engaged. It really is. And as you say, you know, Pentecostals use that term. Roman Catholics, often Roman Catholics uh, use that term because, because they have the office of an exorcist. Right. Uh, they too seem to be more aware of the active power of evil. And, and I think Presbyterians need to start waking, waking up to this without seeing a, a, you know, a, a fork-tongued, horny-headed guy right. under every pillow. Of course. I think we can we can certainly say that yeah, there is yeah. the demonic is more obvious now than it has been for for many generations in the West. Yeah, and, and we see you know we we see it manifested in an Enlightenment culture like our own in ways that you would expect a crafty enemy to manifest his work in an Enlightenment culture, not through um, scary visions but through lies that deceive many mm, and lead yeah. them into destruction. Yeah. Um, it's exactly how, how a crafty enemy like Satan would, would choose to work in, in a, uh, you know, in an advanced, so to speak, culture yeah. like our own. Yeah. I'm, I'm of course reminded of Ephesians six, Paul's words for, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There, Paul um, reckons that our warfare is one that is engaged with a spiritual enemy, a, a, a present darkness um, against rules, against authorities. I take that to mean um, those who uh, um, exercise a great deal of, of, of power and therefore have tremendous resources to do evil. Um, and Paul says, this is where, this is the focal point of our, of our warfare. And if we forget that, um, then we're doing a disservice, um, not only to the Lord, but we're doing a disservice to our neighbor. And one of my points that I try to remind people of is that the advance of wickedness in the culture is bad for my neighbor who I'm called to love. Yeah. Yeah. So call me a culture warrior if, if, if what you mean is I resist those things that are really bad for my even unbelieving neighbor. Yeah. And that's what makes it so annoying to me when you have these Christians mm -hmm. constantly mm -hmm. bashing other Christian and, and there are Christian culture warriors who deserve to be bashed. Right. But when it becomes a bashing anything the conservatives right. traditionally stand for, I think at a point you think, but these people don't care about children. Right. You know, right. If, if you if, if somebody criticizes the LGBTQ movement and all you can say is, oh, conservatives just obsess over that, mm. then I'm going to say you just don't care about children. Exactly. Uh, that's the problem. I mean, I, I would challenge any of those people to sit down for an hour with some of the parents I minister to on a weekly basis whose children um, who, 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 who they have to fight daily for the minds of their children yeah. 
yeah. uh, because of how successful, how active, how appealing the deception is in regard to sexuality and, and gender. But it isn't people like that who write this stuff. It's people like David French. Exactly. He's a lawyer. He's also an expert on higher education, apparently. He's also an expert <laughs> on pastoral ministry. That's you know, right. It's, it's not people dealing with the real spiritual mm -hmm. struggles at a grassroots level. It's the guys who find troglodyte right-wing evangelicals <laughs> very right. distasteful and don't want to be associated with them. Right. So yeah. they're, they're embarrassed by their fellow conservatives. And, yeah. and, you know, you mentioned David French, who's a, who's a perfect embodiment. I've been waiting to David, mention David French for weeks. <laughs> he's he's, a, he's <laughs> one of the rudest people I have to say. <laughs> well, he's, he's a perfect example of what happens to some conservatives, uh, particularly during the Trump era, who, became so embarrassed by their fellow conservatives that they have, they now only know how to punch right. And, you know, I, I would want to sit down with David French and say, let me tell you about uh, the, the several families in my church whose daughters now um, refuse to drink anything in the mornings on school yep. days so that they can get through school all day without using the restrooms because of one. Now the school allows biological males into the girls' restrooms. Number two, drugs are being openly used. In, this is not New York. This is not the Bronx. This is beautiful Shenandoah Valley, Harrisonburg, Virginia. Drugs are openly being used in the, in the restrooms. And so you've got these normal, sweet, nice girls so um, um, anxious about going to school in the mornings knowing that they will not go into the restroom all day because of uh, the, the, uh, the, the pathological things that are happening in those restrooms. I'd like to sit down with David French and have him talk to those parents yeah. um, and to see what it's like when Christians basically give up and stop resisting. Yeah, well, that's the difference between us and, and, and some of the people who opine on this stuff. We've actually been involved in, I mean, I was involved in pastoral ministry right. for six years. And then as an elder before that, you have been involved in pastoral ministry for many, many years. You know, writers and thinkers often deal in abstractions and they, they can deal with them in, with, with the best of motives. But an abstraction is still an abstraction. It's not a real person. When you look right. into the eyes of somebody damaged by divorce or damaged by abuse or damaged by the kind of cultural garbage you're talking about, it's a very different thing. But to go back to the sort of the main thrust then, as we sort of, I think we're probably going to be coming towards a close mm -hmm. uh, here. Uh, I, I've made a decision in the way I teach my classes. When I teach a humanities class that really deals with a lot of what could easily be described as culture war kind of issues, sure. marriage, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I don't use the language of culture war actually in my class. I use the language of what protest because I think it, it communicates more clearly to the rising generation. War does have connotations of chaotic bloodthirstiness mm. that we don't want to bring in to this particular context. And I try to get the students to think about the church is at war. And how do we engage in that warfare? By walking to the beat of a different drum. There are ways of engaging in warfare. There's the get out there on the battlefield and hack each other to pieces way, or there is the protest way. I don't, you know, we're involved in culture war, and the way we pursue that is through cultural protest. The way we protest the culture is by showing people what real good life can look like, mm -hmm. by being better communities, by being better in the way we 
relate to and deal with other people by treating our enemies with a kindness that yeah. they will never extend to us. But I think there are ways of thinking about the warfare in which the church is engaged with the culture that don't bring in the Fred Phelps, Jerry Falwell Jr. kind of connotations. Mm -hmm. And think about prayer. Think yes. about prayer. Uh, is prayer not, you know, in the ancient church, the medievals, Martin Luther mm -hmm. saw prayer as, as the real engagement point in the warfare. Maybe prayer should be something that personally and corporately uh, we start to emphasize more in the worship service and in our own private lives. There are ways of engaging in war that don't involve blood spatter, obviously, up every wall. And, you know, Carl, I, I would just throw this in, you know, in our, in our regular cycle of prayer gatherings at our church, um, two of the things that I make sure are always on the agenda for what we're going to be praying about is um, we, we pray for our nation, our, our national leaders, and we also pray um, for our children. We pray specifically for their minds um, to be guarded from the kinds of things they're hearing. I mean, th these are, we take this very seriously. And, and I, I would say, you know, pastors, if you're not leading your people in prayer over these issues actively, and I'm not talking about giving a political speech and disguise as a prayer. I mean, really praying yeah. Yeah. for your children and for teachers and for people that are on the front lines of these issues. You need to start praying for them. Yeah. And prayer is critical. I think pastors need to take a lead here. When mm -hmm. I was, uh, when I was pastoring in uh, outside of Philadelphia, whenever I led the prayers on a Sunday morning, I always prayed for the president. Mm -hmm. I didn't care who he was. Right. I mean, I came in under President Obama. Uh, I went out under President Trump. I prayed for the president. I prayed that the, I, I gave thanks yeah. for the president because he's, the Lord has placed this man in authority over us in the civic sphere. I prayed that he would be given wisdom. And then I always prayed that if he or those he loved didn't know the Lord, they'd be brought to know the Lord. Mm -hmm. I made no judgment on his soul in my yep. prayer. It can be done. And I Absolutely. think when the pastor sets a tone like that, you know, it's hard to call a man a culture warrior when he prays graciously and respectfully for a politician with whom he may have vigorous disagreements from the right. pulpit every Sunday. And I still believe that pastors and elders, more than anybody else, set the tone for a church. Yes. There is, I think, a trickle-down effect from pastors and elders to the congregation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and I would just add this, this one last thing. The church has been given a mission from Christ and been given ministries by Christ. And these things are very well suited for a spiritual battle. So let's continue to excel in those things. Well, as we draw to a close, I want to thank you all for joining us uh, for this episode. Uh, we pray that uh, you will be yourselves, will be blessed in your uh, Christian walk this week. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, uh, and consider making a donation. We are a donor-supported uh, podcast. And you may also enter there for a chance to win this week's giveaway. It's by a friend of this program, Thaddeus J. Williams. It's his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. I want to recommend this book. Last time we gave this book away, we had Thaddeus on, and we, we commended the book for its content, for its arguments. I want to commend this book this time for its approach and tone. Hmm. If you want to engage in culture war, if you want to use that term, in a gracious way, don't just read what Thaddeus Williams is saying. Read how he's saying it. I think it's a good model 
of how to engage some of the hot button issues of our society in a way that avoids the kind of needless rancor and unpleasantness that marks so much of what goes on. So if you visit our website and don't win a copy of Thaddeus's book, go out and buy one. In the meantime, all that remains is to say thank you for joining us uh, this week, and we look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. So many people to thank for being here, but I really have to thank Facebook. When I first heard about the campaign to get me to host Saturday Night Live, I didn't know what Facebook was. And now that I do know what it is, I have to say, it sounds like a huge waste of time. Man was made in God's image in order to reflect the character and beauty of our Creator. Join us for Made in God's Image, the 2022 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, March 11th through 13th in Grand Rapids and April 29th through May 1st in Philadelphia. This year's sessions will present clear biblical teaching on man's nature and calling, the vital matter of human sexuality, and the purpose and identity provided to us by our Maker. Featuring H.B. Charles, Dan Doriani, Terry Johnson, Jonathan Gibson, and Richard Phillips. For complete information and to register now, log on reformedevents.org. That's reformedevents.org. Don't miss the learning, the worship, the fellowship of the 2022 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. March 11th through the 13th in Michigan, April 29th through May 1st in Pennsylvania. Presented by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals.